Yeah. Thucydides it's right now. Thursday. You know, yeah. <laughs> She's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I got to stab this other guy. <laughs> It's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Bethany. Welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks, as always, to our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month uh, to help keep this thing going. Uh, if you want to jump in and help out over there, you can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. I always say over there. It's not. It's like over there on the website, but you're helping us <laughs> directly. Uh, Anyway, uh, thanks also to uh, our guest this week, Bethany Simpson. Hi. Um, welcome. Welcome. Yeah. So uh, I feel like we should talk, we'll, we'll talk about how we met you okay. uh, first, but, or not first, uh, after, but first we should do <laughs> just uh, intros. Um, so you want to talk real quick about your... Uh, sort of your background, and I guess that'll get to how we met you sure, as well. it probably it's hard will. hard to avoid. <laughs> um, <laughs> hi, everyone. My name is Bethany Simpson. I'm an Egyptologist and archaeologist. Most of the work I do is in Egypt. Um, I met these two giving an online virtual reality tour of the tomb of Nefertari. <laughs> I was a tour guide in a virtual recreation of the ancient environment, and it was sort of the interactive model where everyone can ask questions and the tour can go any way you want. Um, it's great for me because I get to show off my knowledge of a subject that very rarely I get to show off about. <laughs> and the the flexible sort of feedback of it is something I'm really interested in and in developing sort of technology for educational purposes. So it was a, it was a really cool. good experience and it's a really fun job. If you're interested in the tours, I'm just going to plug them, guys. Sorry. Yeah, um, do it. Do it. The, pro, the company is called High Fidelity. They're based out of San Francisco, and they do a sort of um, interactive social environments. It's, it's all free, and you can sign up for the tours when the schedules come out. Right now, they've also introduced, in addition to the Egyptian tour, they have a D-Day model of, I think it's a battleship that they're just premiering soon. Whoa. So you can do an interactive tour from World War II, telling the stories of individuals who were on this battleship during the war. And so they're really looking at developing a way to sort of make gone ancient, you know, sites created live again that people can explore. So it's it's a really wow. great opportunity. Yeah, we'll definitely put a link yeah. to whatever we think is cool uh, sure. in the description so people can can follow it. Uh, yeah, High Fidelity, I think, is founded by the inventor of uh, uh, Second right. Life, yes. right? Or ha mm. I almost said Half-Life because I've been down a <laughs> VR rabbit hole of like <laughs> what's coming next out of steam okay. <laughs> or valve so um yeah it's a really cool you know uh, brian and i uh, have talked about on the podcast a few times just the idea of the vr experiences and how they're different from just sort of even a 2d right. version of the tour um but i bring up the second life thing because it's sort of like this idea of okay well if we're going to try to do the same thing with higher fidelity hence the name mm -hmm. i think i can't confirm that directly um, you know, the, the idea of, well, let's recreate the coolest stuff first. <laughs> it's a really interesting way of looking at that. And then there's this funny overlap because I think our access to that stuff otherwise is generally through museums, 
which like certainly when you're a kid, I don't think you necessarily think of as cool. It's like, I, oh, I got to go to the museum again with my parents. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, for the right people, right. it's a good way of you found the, your thing through it. Yeah. Right. I got dragged on on field trips where I was then like, I'm not allowed to touch anything. Yeah. I have to stay in the group. <laughs> I don't understand what they're saying. I, you know, and, and but so it's it's, I think, almost satisfying in that VR space. Yeah. But then uh, there's this really cool aspect that the, the, what you just brought up, which is um, the community of people diving into VR is what the web felt like in the like mid to late nineties, where it was like, we're onto something. Yeah. Like chat rooms with anyone. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah we're onto something special. You can kind of trust everybody there. Cause they're sort of like, it's a very specific subset mm -hmm. of people that are even <laughs> have built themselves the machinery in order to, you know, go talk to other people that way. Um, and so, yeah, we, we discovered the VR experience through what well, Brian did. So I should probably let him talk about it, but through, I was so stoked when I, when I found it, <laughs> you know, and, and it, and it's like, there's posters up all in high fidelity and everything. And it feels like that kind of thing where if it were a museum, like I, when I go to Getty around here, mm -hmm. I don't feel like, yo, I could talk to anyone associated yeah. with this project if I wanted to, if I right. just, I mean, now I kind of do, cause I've tried it and it's not yeah. as hard as you might think. But when you see that big high profile <laughs> thing or you go to a movie, like nobody's yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to get that director on the phone. Right. But the community is still small enough that I think we were like immediately like that was this was a super cool experience. Uh, I wonder if we could get Bethany to come do the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Answer is yes. Yeah, I'm really so happy you. to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really wonderful experience touring. Uh, I mean, just I, it doesn't need to be predicated on virtual reality at all. It was just I toured a tomb with an expert on Egypt and it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so thank you for hosting that, My pleasure. um, and, and doing that through that program. But how did you get, uh, involved with that particular program? Have you, are you trying to do VR stuff on purpose? Uh, kind of. As yeah. Part of your I'm, job? I'm exploring what it means to be an Egyptologist and an academic these days. I work in Egypt. I run a Neat. dig. So if you want to talk about archeology span mm -hmm. in a minute or whatever, there's the hands-on side of what I do in the, in the dirt, mm -hmm. in the sand. But lots of it is about education, presenting it to the public, and how mm. you tell these stories about the past. And mm -hmm. virtual reality is really the only way to do it, unless you could take huge groups of children to Egypt and put them in a tomb, you know? Right. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, is, when you say it like that, yeah, it's I'll, it's I'll bad sign idea mine up right away. <laughs> I'm not sure you'll be able to get funding for that one. <laughs> I, I want to make sure at this point that we don't glance over the nature of, of Brian's obsession with Egypt okay. at the time that caused him to be so fired up. Uh, do you want to talk about that for a sec? Brian? Yeah, that's actually I definitely I definitely don't want to stay in digital forever because I'm I'm super interested in in the real physicality of what you do. Um way more so than this other stuff, but it certainly is the right intro. I was playing Assassin's Creed Origins uh when we took this tour, which you were well aware of while we were uh when we met in VR. And you actually said one of the towns uh in it's the game, which is fairly yeah. It's, yes, yeah. it's where your dig Piranus. is, right? Which town was it? It's one of the cities set Piranus. in the Fayum. Um, it deals a lot with the poisoned crocodile okay. at the Sobek Temple, I think. I, I will full, <laughs> you know, full disclaimer. I have not played yep. Assassin's Creed the game. I have used their educational okay. ver version of it, which doesn't have any of the totally. gameplay yep. and the plots, but you explore through the landscape. And stuff, which I didn't is even amazing. know that existed. It's, 
Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It's well, free too, right? It, you can just I'm download not sure it. If it's free, I know it's reduced. It doesn't. You don't have to get the whole game with okay. it. Okay, Brian stole but, it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's wonderful. That's what you just revealed. And when it when the game was premiering, my colleagues and I actually got contacted by some people at Ubisoft to talk about you know mm-hmm. um, the choices they made and what they're hoping to represent with it. It was all after the game was done. I had nothing right. to do with the production of it, but the world they sure. built tells really interesting stories about that time period in ancient Egypt and the visualization of it like they recreated the tomb of Alexander the Great which no one knows what it looked like Mm -hmm. but the references they Mm -hmm. picked in the building and decoration of it were so clearly from this time period from this time you know from you could source them really well so even though it wasn't a true space it felt very real and Mm -hmm. believable yeah and we were all it's a super interesting it's a super interesting on-ramp to you know, to the world and to uh, just interest in the topic. Yeah. Kids are going to become this funny layer. Right. <laughs> Kids are so, going to grow up wanting sure. to do that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, well, cause so we, we, so naturally in our conversation before we started recording, we talked about Indiana Jones and punching Nazis. <laughs> and it's funny that the punching Nazis part is like, <laughs> so, so now they have, now we have Assassin's Creed. And so it's like, oh yeah, I, I, you know, slaughtered a bunch of guards with the dagger <laughs> Just yeah. outside this and then I pet historical site. Yeah. <laughs> it got me super interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> great great yeah, layers you know, of features. It's funny that, that yeah, the, that's uh, the hook, yeah. but then you, you know, you'd stick I around. Don't mind. For the, yeah. My my wife has been playing the newest one, Odyssey, right. which is in uh ancient Greece. And I keep recognizing from my philosophy Good. studies, like, yeah. yo, you're talking to this yeah. Thucydides right person. now. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> she's like yeah whatever yeah i didn't i gotta stab this other guy i hadn't <laughs> i hadn't played a game like that in a long time and so like modern video games i guess it's assassin's creed's uh like thing that they do historical yeah. settings and they they to to some extent right. they're historically accurate like the map wasn't quite <laughs> what no, the geography of the game is but, gameplay, but... Quite a bit closer, but you, it had so much incredible detail. And then when I discovered, I didn't discover until I played the whole game that they had the the like educational component, which was mind blowing. Because to- totally, like you were saying about the Tomb of Alexander, I was, I was, I did the the tour of the mm-hmm. library thing, of yeah. Alexandria. We don't know what it looked and like. And <laughs> like exactly the same thing. Yeah, they're like, we're not sure what it looked like, but we took elements from this yeah. library that we do have, and like the front door looks like this, and the, we arranged this and that, and. And so it was as best as it seemed it could be, like a and a good representation of of what we what like current academics right. would tell you this yeah. stuff could be could have been like. So it was just the potential for. I mean, I obviously enjoyed the <laughs> game. The primary <laughs> uh, encouragement was to get in and like yeah. enjoy my time playing a video game. But at the same time, boy, I learned so much, and it drove me to go read a bunch of history to keep up with mm-hmm. the storylines. Were were semi semi tied to reality and um i picked up a cleopatra uh, uh biography while i was playing and it was funny the the biography kicks off at like the exact same moment in time the game does yeah. um they were both like 58 okay. bc okay. and the storyline of cleopatra kind of trying to get her 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 control back and in any case um to play that and feel the like potential for education and then go tour a tomb with you was such a layering of of technology on top of entertainment and education um 
really mind-blowing time <laughs> to be working in your space, I, I would imagine. It's the thing that comes up for us frequently in the space of like, there are a lot of things that we've, Brian and I have realized over the years and over our conversations on the podcast that we are really interested in, but for some reason went over our head, whether it was just yep. the age at the time or how they were presented in education mm -hmm. or like, I, when we talk about engineering, it always makes me really aware that I was like one or two key happenings in my life away from instead yeah. being some sort of rocket engineer. And it just like, but so I feel like at this point we should talk a little bit about the tour just for okay. the context of kind of what's been pieced together and what the really, I think for me, it comes up because it's the difference between what you're talking about when you have, you know, Assassin's Creed, which is we actually have an episode about procedural generation of these spaces where you can map it properly yeah. but then past a point they're kind of like ah that's a rooftop just slap a random rooftop yes. on it and <laughs> we're we're good here <laughs> versus what we experienced in the tomb yeah it's um, a very faithful model with some creative restorations still but it's you know they're not just slapping a general hieroglyphic font on the wall and having it repeats they've got every <laughs> single thing correct right well so, and so how much of that is yeah. generated from like uh, how much of it is 3d model versus mapping versus you know because i know there's all sorts of different volumetric sure. there's a lot of ways of getting that data right. into the space that we're then able to walk around okay i should preface it by saying i had nothing to do with the development of the model the model was created by a group of very interested and very careful researchers who are all just sort of independent fans of egyptology that's a mostly russian group and as far as I'm aware, the leader of it is a man named Andrei Plaskin. I, I think I can give him credit as being the director of the program. And they just sort of made the model based on what they wanted to see in VR and 3D mm. spaces. And some of the people on the team actually went to Egypt and took photos of the, the tomb. Um, they worked with every publication that's ever been made of the tomb. And mm. I know that this particular model was built not completely photogrammetry reconstructed. It was a built model based on the architectural plans. And then they mapped the images to the walls. So everything is not completely spatially accurate in the sense that in the real tomb, there's uneven spots in the floor. And the ceiling has mm -hmm. irregularities from where they were carving the rock out of the hillside and the boulder fell out of the ceiling. So they mm -hmm. had a hole in the ceiling they would try to patch. Um, but in our model, it does appear as if it's a fairly regular polygon surface. However, hmm. um, because the image quality mapped to each wall is so high, you can see that you know some of the paintings are slightly in relief because you can see the shadow on them. And the quality of lighting that they've put in the tomb, which I think is really interesting, they went with old-fashioned oil lamps, which would have been used during the time of the tomb's production. Hmm. So you get not just an environment that feels really spatially accurate, but the light reflects around it in a sort of flickering way. And in that sense, it's really quite immersive. Um, there is also a sort of competing, it does, it does a different thing. There's another model of the tomb of Nefertari out there, and it's on Steam. And I think their tour is called Journey to Eternity. And theirs mm -hmm. is based on complete photogra photogrammetric reconstruction of the tomb as it is today. So that does show all the irregularities in the stone and the paint, and it's really quite a beautiful model. And they have an automated tour you can sort of self-guide and listen to the audio on. Uh, the one I've been working on, again, is built and sort of patched together by this team. 
our model also shows the tomb as it would have been in antiquity. So any modern damage to the tomb is invisible. Places where the paints come off in the last thousand years or the last 10 years has been filled in. <laughs> the, tombs, the tombs had a long history of damage, unfortunately. And so there's a couple of places where they had to use creative license to fill in gaps where they weren't exactly sure what the paintings were. But in most cases, mm -hmm. I firmly believe they did such a good um, research job on this tomb that if you plopped an ancient Egyptian in the tomb model and he was a literate Egyptian, he'd know what to look for in a tomb. I think he wouldn't spot anything wrong with it. He'd be like, yes, this is, this is what a tomb is. This is what the text is supposed to say. Mm -hmm. They even patched in pieces of the text that were missing because they were able to find so many comparable wow. texts from other sources. And they basically created yeah. like each time you have the letter W in hieroglyphs, you have a little quail chick. They essentially made a font from the tomb itself, picking out the, each sign that occurred and put it together back on the walls in the missing spots. Wow. I, I have, cool. I've only talked briefly with them about their process of making it, but it is the most dedicated, crazy team of they did such a wonderful <laughs> job. I'm so happy with it. That's amazing. As a tour guide in the space, how often do you? Because uh, I recall with when uh, we were there, you were saying, "And go get close yeah. to it," because you can yes. actually like. There's an interesting phenomenon. I think of even in VR, people are still sort of they expect a lower fidelity yeah. experience, and you 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 kind of have to call you it know, out. You're and go, no, actually, close. look at things, yeah. and they'll yeah. Um, yeah, and I think there's it's a funny experience too because you have a bit of the sense of being in a regular museum again as well, right? Like stay by the tour right. guide and don't go explore off in the tomb. You'll get lost <laughs> and get hurt or break something expensive. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember a particular moment that was uh, especially strange where it was either you or there was like a host there from High Fidelity that was like helping sure. people with technical issues mentioned that we could resize yep. our avatars because there were a couple parts of the tomb that were smaller. They weren't tall yeah. enough for you to stand in. And so we could shrink down our being, our physical being in this tomb and then walk into a space that was right. only a couple feet high. And gosh, everything about this <laughs> tour was just so, <laughs> so strange and so amazing. And having uh, I, the, pre the amount of presence right. that was available, like your gesturing was so realistic. I, <laughs> I could tell where you were. <laughs> Wonderful. You did a great job. Um, it, it just came through. It came through so well in into the space and and then to be there with uh, Adam was yeah. in a suit with a horse head. There was, I think there was a Terminator in the room, like the, the Terminator skeleton yeah. or something. Um, a little Mega I Man once kid. I had a pickle and... Rick from Rick Riding and Morty in the tomb. And that was the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen in my life. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Pickle Rick. Now I, now I want to find the Pickle Rick avatar. Some kind of Rick avatar would be perfect. But oh. the use of VR in this way, it's fully immersive. It, it brings up really interesting questions for me because it feels like a real tomb to me. And I often forget that I'm not in a real tomb. Uh, once I took off mm. my jacket and tried to place it on a ledge and realized there was no ledge, the jacket dropped to the floor. <laughs> um, and to see how people react to it, I have always been an avatar that looks somewhat like me. It's usually a Caucasian female of my height. And mm -hmm. I do that because I sort of want to have an authentic representation of myself, you know, to the audience. But also, especially in terms of scale, I think it's really important to experience it as if it's your body. And so I want mm -hmm. to know how big the room is compared mm -hmm. to me. 
And there's that one room at the back, especially where the ceiling's too low. And in real life, yes, you can fit in that space if you get down on your knees. There's plenty of room. <laughs> but the VR doesn't quite let you do that yet. So you have to adjust your height. And then right. that sort of changes everything. And sometimes people taking the tour don't change their height back afterwards. And then the whole tomb looks different. Totally. And... <laughs> Uh, it does have a lot I never of. Even thought of that. It in does terms have a of... lot of advantages, though. There's some people who fly around the tomb, until so they get right up near the ceiling and stare really close to the top of the walls. I'm like, that's brilliant. That's something that's not very visible <laughs> in the real tomb. So, right. Um, I never even thought of the size of your avatar as the leader yeah. of the tour as a way to calibrate everyone else's notion right. of the hmm. size of the room. Also, it's almost you know there's so there's there's well it it almost I was about to go down a different rabbit hole, but <laughs> oh, there's so many cool like user experience things where my brain goes down this other place. Of we, I did try to do a version of the tour for a friend who teaches college, and we had her whole class in. And of course, her community college class didn't have an immersive VR setup at all. So what we did mm -hmm. then is I was in the model in my VR setup at home. She was doing the desktop version running around and she couldn't even figure out how to do first person. So you could see her little avatar on the screen <laughs> and she projected it onto the wall so the students could see the detail very well, but they could only use me and her avatar for scale. And even then they said that was mm. very, very helpful because they could tell the size, even though they couldn't see the full 3D around them, they could tell the right. relative size of things. And that's frankly missing from a lot of virtual experiences unless you really set your mm, you know fly mm -hmm. through height at you know human scale two meters maybe or something um right. you don't have a good sense of the space you're in yeah watching watching designers cope with that in different yeah. games is very interesting like the um one of my favorite ones to put people into after they've done some of the tutorial stuff is uh the batman <laughs> game that uh wb made a couple of years ago and it's not for the batman of it it's for the the very first thing they put you in is at, oh, at a mirror yeah. and so immediately you see everybody yes. go whoa and then they behave like they move yep. their hands in front of their face and they touch some things and then they behave completely differently yeah. after that and just so that so so like games have already introduced these mechanics of but we need to introduce right. you to what you are in this space. Yes. Here's a mirror. And everyone's so familiar with the mirror, they immediately go, you know, wave their hands around. Our tour some, has, you go, pick okay, out, got there's it. a and then, set range of avatars oh, if you're new yeah. and you just want to pick one out and there's a mirror yeah. there and you see people messing around with the headsets and trying to interact with their controls. <laughs> right. um, it's really interesting. But then how fast they get it, like, because I remember before that uh -huh. designers talking about how are we going to solve this problem? It's so intuitive. And then somebody went, yeah. yo, a mirror. <laughs> yeah. And they were all like, yeah. it works. Okay, moving on. Wait, we've already invented this. <laughs> yes. The avatar experience is really interesting too, because I try to make eye contact and treat each one like I'm, you know, actually talking to a physical human or T-Rex or whatever I'm talking to, <laughs> but it makes it impossible to read certain body language and also mm. to just get a good idea of the demographics of your audience. Until mm -hmm. people start speaking, you don't know what age they are. You don't know what their, you know, level of linguistics. I only give tours in English, unfortunately. That's all mm -hmm. I'm capable of. You don't know what their comprehension level is unless someone interrupts you and stops. And I mm -hmm. really like it when they do because my whole idea with these tours is they need to be interactive. I need to get your feedback. I need to tailor the tour so you get out of it what you want. 
Mm-hmm. So the the avatars are sometimes it's like I'm talking to a pickle Rick. I'm having trouble reading the pickle Rick. <laughs> you know what is he trying yeah, to say with his body Rick language? Understand. Is he bored? I can't tell. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's it's remarkable how much of that does come th- like. VR wise, we're over a hump where enough of that comes through that everyone that gets in a like a vibe or something yeah. like that goes, whoa, mm-hmm. but it's not quite to the point yet where the conversation, like I'm not, I'm not yet to a point where I'm going to make everyone in my company get it so we can do meetings quote right. in person, you know, like there's it still would just be a bunch of, you know, cartoons kind of standing there, yeah. <laughs> like not really emoting unless they cross their hands mm-hmm. and then I go, oh, you're, you're, you're mad. You're real yeah. closed <laughs> off now. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, I think so a part of that comes back to the idea of we talked a bit before we started recording about um, experience design and sort of, uh, you know, in, in my world, it's UX user experience, you know, when we're talking about software and stuff like that. But it, it, it struck me that, you know, whether at museums or in the VR space or even, you know, like Assassin's Creed, you're you're talking about this designing this educational experience Mm -hmm. so that when you go in the museum, it's like fun for the people, like you're trying to draw people into this educational experience, especially if you're talking about the education system where you have a bunch of kids that kind of like don't want to be there (laughs) and you're going, okay, well, how can I get you on board with this? Well, let's let's be um, fair. It's not just kids. Any group of people is going to be hard to wrangle (laughs) and entertain all at the same time. Absolutely. Totally. Totally. Um, well, and you were talking uh, about, you know, uh, that they've uh, been, they've redesigned the experience at uh, yeah. Getty Villa sort of around this chronolo- chronological presentation instead of, uh, I don't remember what you said it was, sort of. It was thematic before. There was a room dedicated to one topic and yeah. And it was beautiful if you wanted to do a specific class on, if you wanted to tell kids about the ancient gods, they had a room for it where it was all laid out hmm. beautifully, but they had objects in it from like a thousand different uh, span of a thousand years, you know? And so it wasn't really telling you the story about the ancient cultures as much. Hmm. Well, and that strikes me as a shift that's similar to, we, we, they used to be set up because they needed to match the textbooks and the textbooks had chapters and those chapters had, you know, here's what this chapter is about. And, 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 and with people stepping back to this idea of, okay, how how do we, let's think a bit more about how we teach this stuff. Eventually somebody goes, you know, it really makes a lot more sense to like kind of lead you through the timeline. That's the whole experience instead of just, oh, this is chapter 22. Now flip to chapter 23. Chapter 22, the Greeks. Um, Chapter 23, the Romans. It's like, no, they were both at the same time for a long period and they talked to each other and influenced each other. So I'm curious. So my only experience, I just remembered this. My only experience with guiding tours. So we, we used to have recruits that would come through. Uh, at UVA and there's yeah, there's historical stuff yeah. all over the uh, campus there, the grounds as they call it. Mm-hmm. And we had at some point acquired the actually hard to find tour guides oh, manual wow. for the, like it's actually a prestigious position to guide tours at Virginia. Um, our team had gotten a copy of one and somehow I ended up being the guy that was the most fascinated in the, the stupid little details in there. So I ended up guiding these tours. We would have, like groups of 10 recruits come through for a weekend for the swim team. And I would like lead the tour around campus and it was always kind of, but 
it was essentially a pre-designed yeah. tour because I had mm -hmm. this handbook. So I didn't really think about design or like, how long will this take? This will take until the recruits yes. seem bored and then we'll go, hey, this is <laughs> yeah. a burger spot. Let's grab a burger. <laughs> like, um, what, you know, I'm curious, even in VR or in the sort of museum experience, I mean, you're, you're trying to move yeah. people through a museum if you're guiding a tour, right? So you have this sort of thing of like, okay, here's the interesting thing about each slot, but also I've only got an hour. And then we get to leave room for right. questions and then like, what's, what's, you know, what goes through your head when you're, you're sitting down and going, okay, I did to give an hour tour. It's gotta be an hour. <laughs> gotta do this. Yeah. Um, I was really, I felt really lucky that high fidelity didn't set any sort of standards. They said, here's what we have. Here's the opportunities you can do with this platform and this model, see what you could do with it. So there's, and I should also say there's two other ladies who give the tours along with me. Um, I want to make sure I get their last names right. Uh, Kylie Thompson and Heidi Hilliker. Um, they're all here in Los Angeles, and I know them because it's a very small world of Egyptologists. But mm -hmm. I've never seen what their tours are like. And we never really discussed a sort of standardization because we haven't mm. had to. They're individual tours. They're different every time. Even every tour I give is completely different. But we did individually sort of work on what are the key things you have to hit in this tomb? What are the key things you want the audience to take away? And then from there, I always kind of see it as a read the crowd, see what interests them. And if they have very specific interests, let's go with that. Um, the good thing about this model is since we're all Egyptologists, we do have that wealth of detailed information like your tour guide book probably had for Virginia. Like this building contains 25,000 bricks or, you know, stupid little details. <laughs> right. Yes, I could go 10, yes. 10 layers deeper exactly. on this. If... But yeah. I mean, those are anecdotal. <laughs> They're not really good information that people need to have, you know? <laughs> so, right. and even when teaching at university, students would ask me like, well, how much taller is this pyramid? And I'm like, then that pyramid. I'm like, I don't know. Go look it up. It doesn't matter. You know, that's not the point. I don't care about numbers. Let me you Google know? that for you. Yeah. Like, Why don't you know this? Like, it's, it's not important. Um, so having the background of information, like we're all specialists in Egypt. We know a lot of facts, but that gives us the flexibility to bring out the facts that we think are relevant to each conversation. So in building these tours, I kind of looked at it as we've got to get everyone to see each room in the tomb because they're paying to see the tomb more than anything, or they're not paying, but they're, they're here to see the tomb and to experience the space. So even if they don't listen to a word I say, I'll at least make sure I've shepherded them through each area. And once they're there, they can mm -hmm. look around and ignore me or not. Um, Maybe they'll learn something from me. Maybe they'll just be inspired by the images. I don't care. I'm glad they're there experiencing it. Um, but I did sort of start to pick out on each tour things that I believe are fascinating. And if the audience responds to that, I know mm -hmm. where to go next. Um, I can do a whole tour on the art of the tomb. Um, I can do a whole tour of the role of women and what the tomb tells us about that in ancient Egypt. And so that flexibility I really appreciated. It is difficult because VR takes away your ability to read the audience. I don't know if there's an eight-year-old who's just not talking, who's taking my tour. You know, mm. so sometimes if you veer off in a certain direction, you don't know if you have to dial it back or change the way you're communicating with the audience. Um, I really hope to get better at that. I think I'm, I think I'm working on it pretty well, but that's something that really interests me. Uh, the other side of it is that the VR tomb feels so real, as I've already said, that I tend to treat it like a real tomb. I not just museums are very formal and that's starting to change with public education. They want more interactive exhibits and things, but a tomb is a tomb. It's where a 
deceased person wanted to remain for eternity. And in that case, I believe a certain level of respect has to be shared. Um, Mm-hmm. However, in a virtual tomb, do you still have to treat it with the same respect? Is it a sacred place anymore? <laughs> and this is something that archaeologists are really, really interested in exploring. So I've, huh. for the most part, sort of just been observing what the what the guests do in the tombs. And some are afraid to touch. Uh-huh. Some won't go up close to the walls. Um, some will just put their hands through, see what they can do, climb on the sarcophagus, <laughs> um, take selfies with it. And I'm like, this. I'm glad you're experiencing it. This is all great. But if you do this in Egypt, you're going to get arrested. And as you should, because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. no. That's such an interesting question too though right like is this still a sacred space right, right? and which is yeah. people have that question about the real tomb i mean there are mm-hmm. badly behaving mm-hmm. tourists in all parts of the world but <laughs> if it's a tomb of you know especially with mass tourism you have whole buses of people shepherded in and out of the valley of the kings and the valley of the queens mm. and some are there just to hit the highlights and some are there to learn and some are fed up because they you know have food poisoning or they've been weeks without good sleep or something <laughs> like that <laughs> Um, and I've seen a lot of different behaviors that I don't find culturally acceptable, but it's not my call. <laughs> um, the Yeah, the tomb, I tend to see it as I'm going to treat this with respect because to me, it's real. I'm in the tomb. And mm. that just makes it easier for me it's to It's probably interact. a good example to set yeah. either way. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, you know, as a rule, like yeah, in life. Yeah, like, try not um, to anger the dead. <laughs> well, yeah, and then just, uh, but there, and then there's an interesting aspect of that that's sort of at the same time, uh, kind of uh, you know what I was thinking. What I was what I was thinking is you were talking about, you know, if someone has questions and they're interested on a tour, like I immediately wanted to say, well, during an in-person tour, have you ever had somebody where you've had to be like, okay, we gotta we yes. gotta pull it back because this is just <laughs> becoming a two-person conversation with ten other people standing, sort of, you know, like. Like, okay, let's move on. Tapping their feet, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I've actually, and I'm, I'm very bad at handling that. Um, High Fidelity has a sort of bodyguard with me who also knows the technical <laughs> side and can fix the glitch problems, but is also actively on controls to mute people if necessary. And hmm. it's at the point, ah, I don't, I don't even get involved. They just know, like, now nope, we're muting this person. I'm like, you know, on the so down low. Interesting. <laughs> What a handy feature to yes, realize exactly. that would be. <laughs> and sometimes I'll say like, well, that's a really great question. Let's take it back at the end of the tour. Like you would with an overenthusiastic student in a class. Mm-hmm. It's taking too much time. Right. But on the other hand, I really like these intensive conversations with just one person because I know they're getting the most they can out of this tour. And mm-hmm. I can't tell if the other people are interested or bored sometimes. And so I, I try to gauge the audience and look around. And again, the VR is not quite there. You can see them shuffle their feet occasionally yeah. or cross their arms. <laughs> but Well, and what's weird is you get into the digital space and you also have to consider if we're treating things it's as as scarce that aren't scarce in the same way so so you know there's an argument for well if you don't like it just leave and come back for the next one because you're in your living room anyway and it's not really to dress up and come to egypt or anything yeah yeah Yeah. the Um, other thing is but at the same time you don't want to then get have that get so disrespectful that you're you know you don't want to be well pop in and out and whatever (laughs) it's like irc you can't it's not the right, right experience if you treat it like a straight up yeah. chat room, pop in, pop out, and whatever. And I've had people do that. And you know. it is sort of disruptive, yeah. but go ahead, do it. You know, it's just, 
hopefully don't bother too many other people when you're jumping in and out. So, so far, I've had very few, I haven't had any really negative experiences. There's been a couple that has been like, okay, let's rein this in. But it's been on the whole incredibly positive. I think it's, then again, people who are interested in VR and interested in Egypt, whether those two groups overlap or not, they're, they're a pretty good group of people, you know, <laughs> they're, they're interested and they want to be there. It's not, I haven't done an elementary school group in the tomb. I haven't done a captive audience yet, mm-hmm. except for, captive yeah, audience. <laughs> yeah. I, I did a college yeah. class that was specifically studying this time period. And so they, the teacher, and I'm friends with the teacher, she was designing the tour with me on what they already know and what they could potentially be tested on. So if you have mm. that kind of feedback with your audience, you can really do great things. Um, but I, I tremble at doing, and doing a class full of eight-year-olds would be really interesting. I know Heidi Hilliker did a trial with students way back in the day. Well, like November, and that's how fast it moves. <laughs> and the they actually the brought technology. the class. Yeah. They brought the class into the office and had them all set up with the VR headsets, and their teachers were there monitoring and everything. Very cool. So it was. Um, it, I've seen footage of the, they filmed it as a learning experience for us. And they, I've seen footage of it. And some of the kids were just running and jumping all over the place and others were listening. So again, it was a herding you know, control <laughs> situation. But on the other side of it, the children immediately took to the VR experience. They had no problem orienting themselves. They wanted to explore everything they could. They were jumping, they were flying without, oh my God, how do I do this? What do I do with the controls? Right. So, huh. I think it's going to be really, really useful in the very near future to develop these kind of programs for schools, especially. It's It could potentially well, really change the way ancient history and a lot of other topics are taught. Yeah. yeah I, awesome I think to hear gets, you say that after yeah, having done this for right. a little while. Well, I think it gets back to the the experience design part that I was talking about, which is like we were talking about in the context of museums and tours and stuff. And like, you know, there's this broader question of like, what is the whole, you've got your field of expertise, you know, Egypt. And like, I I think of it from like a marketing standpoint, right? Like I I frequently say that JJ Abrams as a filmmaker is really good at having this idea of, I want to control the narrative from the first second you're even aware that this film is being made. And that means that's going to be what leaks out after the, (laughs) after variety figures out something about something and you know yeah. but he's in he's in control of that idea and it's so like you know you're talking about doing this with kids and about introducing the thing and it it makes me go back to that thought of assassin's creed yeah. and the idea of the sort of this on-ramp to an awareness of a time period right. and, and what it was like but it's still and, a controlled narrative there are plot points mm-hmm. that you're yeah. supposed to hit and yeah right and i think you know f- for us uh at least when Brian and I were coming up, like the closest thing I can think of in terms of, I mean, there were movies and stuff. I did think, God, when did Troy come out? Mm. Um, <laughs> but like, um, I was in know, college. Gladiator so like for sure yeah. came out. Yeah. So, but you know, so other than stuff like that, I mean, we, we had a brief period of obsession with the book killer angels. Okay. I th- is that what it was called? Brian, the civil war book. No, we had to read it for about. some class. And that, <laughs> this is I don't one think of I read any books times. in high school. Sorry. In our, uh, don't tell. In our education, well, we didn't. We didn't. I don't. We weren't in the same history class. No. All the time. That was the one class we didn't always share. Um. But yeah, it was. I guess American history is when we would have covered it. And instead of being like, here's the Civil War chapter. Instead, we had this book we had to read that was historical fiction, okay. functionally, 
about the Civil War, and it really changed my interaction with then the lessons about the Civil War in this space of, at the same time, though, I know that there later I would encounter academics who would say, who would scoff at Assassin's Creed because, well, it's just, well, it's not good enough or it's disrespectful Mm -hmm. to the material or it's whatever. And then, you know, my reaction is generally like, who cares if Indiana Jones is the reason you end up interested in this academically worthwhile pursuit? Mm -hmm. Um, And that always put me kind of at odds with, like it happened with filmmaking for me too. I was kind of in the guy in the back going, yeah, but like, let's not talk too much shit about the Fast and Furious movies. Cause I mean, a lot of people (laughs) like them for a reason, you know, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my point of view is yes, I've dedicated my life to this subject. This is what I do and this is what I focus on. If I encourage other people to follow that field, great. I you know, it's a crowded marketplace out there. There's not a lot of jobs in mm-hmm. it, but great. I'm happy you found what you love. If it's not the career path for you, I just want you to know something fun and useful. I want you to be informed enough. And if you get that through comics or video games or anything, if you can start a conversation, maybe have some points to bring up and you're willing to realize it's not quite be all end all truth, but you have a point of reference and you're interested. That's what I want. I don't want the world to be full of Egyptologists. I want the world to be full of people who think Egypt was neat and are interested in learning more Mm -hmm. with the opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I fell into Egyptology in first grade. I read a book and it was called Mummies Made in Egypt. And it's written and illustrated by a kid's author called Aliki. And it was also an episode of Reading Rainbow. That's how old I am, by the way. Ah, (laughs) Then I probably have seen that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. LeVar Burton went to the uh, Museum of Art in Boston and talked to the people who looked at the mummies. And now I know some of the people who are on that show because Egyptology is a very small world. Have you listened to his podcast at all? I don't know. <laughs> uh, he has a podcast called Lavar Burton Reads. He just reads, sh- he just reads short stories. Oh, I love it's Lavar Burton. Great. It's pretty great. He hit yeah. every amazing, <laughs> like he was in Roots, the history. You know, he oh, hit yeah. Star Trek. He hit, yeah, totally. He's a god. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's a fascinating. Like, where do you th- do you think? You know, because trying to rethink it in terms of this idea of like, okay, what's the on ramp that eventually get eventually mm-hmm. gets you to understanding. When, when, when I was younger, it was very much, you know, I keep saying that cause it's, I just don't, I don't have kids. I don't know yeah, what, I don't know what the standard curriculum is at this yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, for us, it was like, oh, this is the Egypt chapter yep. in ancient world history. And you're going to kind of like memorize a bunch of stuff and there's going to yep. be a test at the end of it. And then, you know, it gets us to, I think an idea you brought up earlier, which is, you know, academic academia used to very much be built around this idea of knowledge and there were, you know, and, and I think you said gatekeepers of knowledge, you know, it's like what the academic institution used to be. Mm -hmm. And now we have, like, we've talked about it before. You can just go Google the facts. And so now you kind of have this, I, I think it's easier to talk about what Brian and I always end up bringing up in the context of education, which is like, maybe this is the thing that you're not going to understand to the level that that textbook assumed you know, until you're 25, 30, right. like until you're deeper down the mm-hmm. hole of I really care about this stuff. And instead that chapter could just be play Assassin's Creed for like a week, you know, like <laughs> in the version oh, where you're not stabbing people. No, it's being, it's some, <laughs> I, some teachers are assigning it. Like let's play it yeah. in class and talk about what choices the direct, the creators made. 
as long as mm -hmm. you're talking about like, this is not true, this is a work of fiction <laughs> and art and things like that. No, um, from my understanding, and again, I'm not on the pulse of what kids these, these, do these days. Um, I'm a big fan of historical fiction. I think it's great. I think it inspires people to learn more. So there's series dealing with the ancient world, like the Percy Jackson books for ancient Greece and Rome. And uh, mm. Rick Jordan also has a series that's set in ancient Egypt, which I haven't read yet. And he does the Norse mythology and all these sort of modern cultural takes on ancient world. And are they accurate? No. But do they bring up points that your history book didn't that are really valid? Yes, they do. And mm -hmm. so... The, the academic gatekeeping is really, really interesting, especially with VR, I'm afraid. There's this idea of our job is to teach what is true and real. And of course, nothing's true. It's like the Indiana mm -hmm. Jones line. If it's truth you're after, Dr. Tyree's philosophy course is down the hall. We're looking for facts. <laughs> um, and the truth is none of us know what the ancient world was like. We're all kind of guessing. We're just using more facts, hopefully, than other people are to get at the guesswork. And lots of academics are really afraid that historical fiction is teaching the wrong things, which in some cases mm -hmm. it does. Like there's a lot of mythology around the Vikings as a completely white society and stuff like that. You know, it can be used in certain ways for narratives. Um, the classics disciplines going through the same thing. Who owns the classics? Who is the classical world? Um, but in the world of VR especially, academics are really worried about how real it seems. And the more real and immersive the environments get, the more they worry. Because, hmm. well, let's face it, Assassin's Creed is not a true story. It deals with a lot of historical fact. You've got the story of Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. But even the landscapes you're looking at are not accurate. The, Alexandria is entirely made up, except for the street grid, which is all we really know about Alexandria's hmm. buildings. Um, they have the town I work in in it, and they were talking to me about it, and they showed it to me. They gave me a tour of my own town in their game. <laughs> and Karanis was so beautiful. I started laughing and crying at the same time because I'm just like, you made, it, <laughs> you made it so fancy. I'm so sorry, but it was never that nice, you know? <laughs> and so I was kind of like, that's my baby. You can't do that to my baby. But at the same time, kids are going to know the name Karanis. Maybe they'll look it up. Maybe they'll read one of the very boring papers I've written. Who knows? You know, so, um, I had an experience with that in LA with the, when LA noir came out, uh -huh. like that's, that's a really good recreate right. recreation. Like I was not living in LA at the time. Uh -huh. And I remember playing with people and going like, yo, but that theater's in that's the right really place. Where it is. Yeah. This is actually in that building's, uh, yeah, you know, it's yeah. really, I've had students. It's an interesting. I've had students go to Florence and they played the old Assassin's Creed and they're like, I knew my way around. I knew where everything was. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's cool, huh? That said he hasn't changed much in 500 years. Um, no, one. Well, and it sort of lines up with, with like the idea of this even gets to the notion of sort of the education on ramp. And then this idea of like there's, there's license taken yeah, in all of this course, stuff. Yeah. Uh, even if it's just a textbook, there's still like they're deciding what everything's you know, filtered through there. a point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I've actually worked on in academia is the idea of using VR in an academic way, not really for education or entertainment, but as building models of structures and past environments that we can use as research tools. And in that sense, mm. we're pretty much faithful, like, record what's there. And then how do we annotate what we know was there, like 90%? but it, we can't prove it. Mm. And if you recreate the, the roof that was on the Coliseum, the sail system, we're pretty sure we know how it worked, but we can't really prove it. So if we put it there, does that make people believe it's real? Um, 
a while ago a version well, of the odyssey came out that had a map and everyone was like oh this pinpoints where he was like this is scylla and charybdis and this is the island of the lotus eaters and it's like that must be in libya i'm like it's not a real place that's the whole point of the story <laughs> so, but people started telling me like oh you know that the lotus eaters yeah. were over here i'm like mm, no 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 so well it's funny because it's on that great you know like at the extremes of the gradient of of like how much license yeah. is taken, you have the one side where you're going, hey, we're going to give you credit for trying it all, which is how I feel about Assassin's Creed, right? Like it's great <laughs> that they're doing that, but it's functionally not really necessary. They actually did a great job. Um, and then on, on the other side, you have this like, you know, you kind of start to get into the top 20, 10% where it's like, well, if it's not actually whatever we have agreed is a representation mm -hmm. of uh irl yep. reality versus vr like then you start and um i one of the things i wrote down to mention is it's like perfect for this slot which is i remember the conversation when people were doing really high fidelity scans of the interior of oh, notre dame god yeah Cathedral. <laughs> and i remember them saying like well what's yeah. why mm -hmm. is what i remember them talking about at the time and now yep. all those people are kind of <laughs> going, look, I don't want to say told yeah, you so but we really right did. now, <laughs> but the answer, the answer for why just happened, which is like nature and yeah. time are really good at destroying things that we care about. <laughs> exactly. And I know a lot of people who work solely in cultural heritage management, doing drone led photogrammetry scans of ancient sites in Syria you know, and before mm -hmm. and after models and what do you do with this information? And, but just the idea that we have a permanent record of things, all things change. Like my town is slowly, my ancient town, Karanas is mostly built of mud brick and it's 2000 years old. So every time there's a rain, a it rains, a little bit comes off the top mm. and, you know, it's always changing. We're not ever going to preserve it fully. But if we have models every five, 10 years of the change, then we can do a lot of scientific work to check the changes and make up plans for conservation, but also continue to do this work in a way after the site's gone. You know, it's someone a hundred years from now will be able to use these buildings. Yeah. It's really neat. Yeah. It's in a weird, interesting, again, it falls on that gradient in this way where, you know, if you, you, you read primary sources, yeah. if you go take an ancient yeah. history course in college and it's like, Hey, this is a guy who was there at the time going, yeah. I should write this down because it'll be important to know later. And then, you know, y'all have fights about how faithful it is or not. Yeah. It's like, but, was he, was he lying? Was he telling a tall tale? Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so, you know, like the, the argument of whether it was a tall tale or not has progressed to this point now where we're going, look, we're just going to yep. scan it. <laughs> As it is. Yeah. We're going like, to try to be as uninvolved just, as a human weird, and let science do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's, it's funny yeah. that there's resistance at every step of that. Like you, like, like I remember seeing about the scanning of the interior, right. it was the lasers. Cause they were scan They were laser scanning yeah. the interior of Notre Dame. And they were saying, well, uh, we don't know no, what the lasers do will do to the paint and the, you know, and like, they do nothing. <laughs> yeah. The answer is nothing. Cause it's cause yeah. you have the windows open. Right. So <laughs> like light is happening in <laughs> the room, but there, never mind. If, were you ever in there? It's damp and drafty. There's a lot of, you know, bigger problems than one day of laser scanning. I'd love to, I'd love to get to some sure. of the real world aspects of what you do sure, as an archeologist, <laughs> uh, both academically and, and, uh, 
Well, I guess the the I mean, like we've talked about a couple times already and is unavoidable when archaeology yep. comes up. Indiana Jones is what everyone yep. I think thinks of immediately, which can't possibly be every no, day for you is that no. adventurous archaeology <laughs> is a lot of long periods of tedious work and then one day of oh my god what the hell's going on it's an amazing thing or slash disaster <laughs> it's it's really very slow work most of the time like we don't yeah. at my site we don't even really use shovels we're just troweling away little buckets of sand at a time sieving every single hmm. one to see if any there's any little finds in it um Indiana Jones mm-hmm. is kind of a sore spot for a lot of archaeologists. It's the reason why most of us are here. If we admit <laughs> it. But he's not a good archaeologist at all. He's all set right. in the 1930s when archaeology was pretty much like that. But he's arguably a treasure hunter. You never see him take notes. You never hear of him publishing. He's not, you know. And it's totally, also based right. in a time period where there's, you know, less law about it. But there's whole aspects of colonialism and taking mm-hmm. national heritage away. You know, he steals the idol out of the temple that the natives actually still worship and blah 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 um right yeah that's a great that's a great point great perspective <laughs> well, <there>. and... <laughs> literally right in front of them while they're chasing him yeah exactly they he actually holds it up to him and they all still bet yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway. um today in egypt no <clears throat> material cult nothing of their cultural heritage is allowed to mm-hmm. leave the country so if i found a gold sarcophagus i don't get it obviously if i need to do dirt sample analysis mm-hmm. that has to be done in hmm. egypt Nothing can be taken from the country, which is really, really cool Mm -hmm. because it has a way of involving local peoples with their heritage. It has a way of enforcing, you know, bans on the sales of antiquities Mm -hmm. and looting, which is still sadly a really big problem. Um, And it also means that Egypt has had to develop a whole industry Mm -hmm. of technology to process the finds locally and or at least in Cairo. Yeah. So it's really great developmentally for a country to have this sort of control of their heritage. Um, there's also the aspect of it just makes it difficult to work as an international team sometime and technology is really useful in that Um, getting everyone to come to Egypt for uh, I used to do seasons that were three months long at a time um, and stay out in the field in a tent you know the the dig house had electricity Hmm. but we were living in tents and it's not romantic it's very slow tedious work and you have to be there the whole time you can't just run back to you can't even run back home and get the good chemicals because you couldn't get them into the country on the plane you know so it's a lot of it's a lot of really strange days of work figuring out how you can macgyver a solution Hmm. and um my average day on a dig we start work when the sun comes up as soon as it's visible you can see what you're doing that's when we have to start work because it's so hot. Mm. We have to stop before two o'clock in the afternoon, mm. usually. And so that usually means we're leaving the house by five in the morning and getting on site by 530 and digging until 10. Then we have second breakfast, which is the best time <laughs> of the day. And then we dig again until noon, have a quick break, and then we go home at two and then do all the paperwork okay. and do the computer processing. So it's it's drudgery. It's really hot and painful. I've worked in the summers and in the falls. The average temperature, I'd say, when I've been there has been around 100 degrees. Wow. Last time I was there, we worked in July and August, and it was like 37 degrees Celsius the whole time during the day, which is, but it's, I don't know what it is. But it's, it's, it's dry hot. heat? <laughs> yeah, it's very dry heat. So <laughs> when you're in the shade, it's actually not bad, but there's no shade. And if you're in a building... We don't have air conditioning on the site, obviously. We have a little bit of electricity, but we can't even run fans because the work we're doing would blow away the small samples and stuff. Oh, so it's 
I don't recommend Egyptology unless you're kind of a masochist. (laughs) (laughs) Other archaeology and some projects in Egypt have great on-site resources. They have a dig house that's been there for 100 years and Mm. is constantly being updated. And you have a full chemical lab with a fume hood and everything. But my site is very provincial. And it's a wonderful site and I love it. But we just don't have the resources to work that way. So it's it's a challenge. It really is. Um, I don't know. The other problem is I'm a person who is trying to work in academia at the same time as doing a field project. And in most experiences at my level of academia, I don't have tenure anywhere. I'm jumping from post to post depending on what's available. That means I can't take a semester off to go dig in the mm. fall or the winter, which is what most established people do. Most missions for Oxford or whatnot work in maybe March Hmm. when the weather's Mm -hmm. nice. I have to work in the summer. And that means all my team has to work in the summer. And the locals we hire to help us have to work in the summer. And it just becomes more of a slog. Um, The directing aspect of running a dig and organizing it is really it's, it's not just about teamwork. It's about physical endurance. Like, mm. what can you push your people to accomplish while not having the mutiny You're against right. you? <laughs> so it's really not glamorous at all. It's We all get sick. We all get, you know, heat exhaustion. We make friends with the local doctor. You know? <laughs> we, we all come with our own medications and, you know, read up books about, okay, if your fever goes this high, we're taking you to the hospital. We set very strict rules. How much water did you drink? That's not enough. Drink more water. <laughs> you, you can't go back out there and so you drink this liter of water so it's it's a very strange profession but then nine months out of the year i'm teaching in a university with great resources Mm -hmm. air condition lovely office that kind of thing and it's it's partially why it's partially why indiana jones was the perfect cover (laughs) because you can just you know yeah the university expects you to be gone for three months they don't know you're not a (laughs) secret spy or whatever Yeah, uh, so, the, whole, the whole aspect that he actually was a spy working for the government during the 50s and stuff. It's like, yeah, right. like, archaeologists actually did that. Huh, sure. Because you know the I mean, locals a, and you know what's going on. And yeah, it's you can get anywhere in Cairo, you know? Crazy. Yeah. So so I'm curious. There's there's an aspect of this. You mentioned the looting and you said, yeah. which, you know, is, is unfortunately still a problem. Oh, yeah, everywhere. It's also Not just Egypt. Right. Well, but it's also been going on uh, like forever. So yeah. there's this other con- there's, there's this other sort of museum context conversation that I I can't say I have an opinion on, but I've always been fascinated to follow, which is like occasionally a thing will trade hands that's like, hey, we stole that from you 150 Ex- years yes. ago, so we're gonna give What's it back. What's the statute of limitations on this kind of? Yeah, thing? right. Yeah. So at what point do you just go, yeah, well, everyone was looting back then, so it's ours. You Sorry, just, you just keep it. Yeah. <laughs> or the the most famous the most famous case is the Parthenon mar- marbles from Athens, mm, yeah. which were sold to you know, uh, what's his name, Elgin. The Elgin marbles were sold to Lord Elgin, but it was when the Turks were controlling the country. So it wasn't the mm. Greeks making this decision. So you know, it was a legal purchase at the time, but it you know. And it all comes down to a lot of really sketchy questions of colonialism and authority and cultural heritage. And I, I think it's fair to admit that all archaeologists, with very few exceptions, have to deal with the question of, are we looters? Mm-hmm. And I mean, on a legal, there's the legal aspect, there's the moral aspect, there's the time difference. Like if you're building your research on stuff that was done 200 years ago, maybe you're not directly responsible for looting cultural heritage. But does 
the Rosetta Stone need to be returned to Egypt. Arguably, it was taken out of the country when mm -hmm. Egypt was not in control. There's also, I heard a really funny legal argument that the Rosetta Stone should be returned to France because it was stolen from the French by the English <laughs> during the Napoleonic Wars, essentially. And so it's like, if you're talking about legal precedent. <laughs> right. Um, well, and then you also, you can't, you can't, you can't go too far down the chain yeah. of saying, well, we, you know, okay, we're going to, we're going to track it back to, you know, well, it's, it's, that should be in Syria. Mm -hmm. Well, like that's a really bad place to put something important right yeah. now because it might get blown up. Right. Right. And like, whole, it bluntly, whole sites you know? from that area <laughs> are badly, badly damaged in the last 10 years. Mm, right. And I mean, there's still things there. There's always things there, but 10 years ago they were, hotbeds of you know resources and people were working on them and now you know you can't go there for at least a while um there's this idea that especially in keeping an entire cultural heritage in one small area is not smart for anyone you know mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. when egypt was going through their revolution in 2011 there was a chance that the museum was going to burn down in cairo and you know that's just what would happen then you know it's not even it looting, terrorism, natural disasters. The entire museum in Brazil, which burned down a mm -hmm. couple of months ago, took out artifacts that just hadn't been studied yet, you know? And yeah. it took out all of Brazil's collections, not just Brazilian artifacts, but from all over the world. And now do they get to rebuild? Is our other countries and cultures going to loan them new artifacts? You know, right. it's it's a really tricky question. Yeah, it's question. an interesting, it, I mean, and that part of it sort of gets <clears throat> to, well, then... You have the idea of heritage and sort of ownership of the details, but then you also have the idea of like the global ownership right. of the history of the planet. Yeah. And then you go, well, how would we protect that? Well, in the technology world, I immediately go decentralized, yeah. <laughs> right? So like, well, we need 36 servers and they need to have redundant copies all mm -hmm. over the globe. And then, you know, like, and you can do that with digital stuff, which yep. is part of the motivation, I think, to virtualize and I scan agree. all this yeah. stuff. But then it's so crazy because it collides with, you know, just sort of, we, we have an episode that I think will come out before okay. this one about climate change in the context of like geological mm -hmm. timescales. And it's sort of like, that's where my head kind of went while Notre Dame was mm -hmm. burning. Like everyone's sort of like, oh, you know, and lamenting that it's such a terrible loss. And there's part of me that's like, yeah, that's true. But also, yes, yeah. <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> Eventually, it really does. Old, yeah. you know, old, like, old building. And and part of that is from going to Virginia. It's like part of that tour is this used to be here. The rotunda yep. has burned down like three different yep. times, and they yep. rebuilt it. And that's just kind of yep. what happens. Nobody's like, "Whoa, it's well, me!" Well, that spire that fell down so dramatically on Notre Dame was a recreated spire too. So it's like uh, right, right. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's so it's a funny, you know, the aspect of archaeology, yeah. like hi history as the study of what details we know from mm -hmm. the time. You know, archaeology then is let's go try to find the, like the quote about the facts mm -hmm. is so perfect because it's, let's go try to find the real thing. And now it's kind of like, so we can scan it into yeah. a digital database that won't yeah. burn down late and we'll put it on the moon. And then, we, you know. Well, <laughs> the other good thing is big data right. is really transforming archaeology. We don't have to focus on just those three pyramids. We can talk about daily lives of <laughs> a thousand people who lived at the same time period because we've got enough 
processing power to keep all their goods, their names, their records, their statues, all intersearchable. And so we're really looking at statistically relevant relevant results these days. And, and so in that sense, archaeology is drifting away from museum practice. Museums are about getting the most perfectly preserved and beautiful version of an object that you can and keeping it as this is what the culture looks like. King Tut's mask, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's the face of Egypt. He's still on the money today. Yeah. Um, and yes, he's gorgeous. It's a beautiful gold mask. The artwork is amazing. The history of it is amazing. He's not representative of ancient Egypt Hmm. at all. King Tut was a very obscure king from a very obscure time period in Egyptian history. And he's only famous because we have all of his stuff. You know, he's not Ramses II. (laughs) You know, it's, he was, he's he's not representative of kingship in Egypt. I mean, yes, he was a king in Egypt and yes, his stuff is beautiful and part of Egyptian cultural history, but he was from a very, very short reign and a very short cultural period that really experimented with art in a way that you don't see in other time periods. So now that archaeology is going more towards Let's even stay away from the history aspect. Let's not talk about the kings and the tombs and the temples. Let's <laughs> talk about houses. Let's talk about individual graves. Let's talk about daily life. That has a nice way of decentralizing the problem. And they're not going to show up mm. in museums because you don't want to see every person's little wooden unguent jar for when they did their makeup <laughs> in the morning. But the fact that we have thousands of them and that they're all scanned and comparable means we can come to some really cool conclusions Neat. about all sorts of stuff. Right. Well, and even stuff that spans the the sort of scientific verticals yeah. and stuff. You know, it's like once you start yes. to have good data, we can start to look at things like what is the state of yeah. climate change? You know, you can yes. start to track these things where you go, well, this is what we have in the record. And so mm-hmm. you can, you know, the fossil record works yeah. the same way. And we can follow the trend. And then, you know, and, and it, it, not to bring everything back to climate change, it's sort of been our obsession this this season, but it's like, no, go ahead. <laughs> this is all tied up in the education and the understanding and the, and the what do we mean when we say science yeah. says this is a problem? Like part of the problem we're having as a globe right now yeah. is all of these different avenues of science, even the ones that we maybe don't think of as like like contributing in the same way. Once you can start to look at that record of how the actual people in ancient Egypt behaved, you can start to be like, well, here's how the river was behaving. And so that means here's how the plane by the river was behaving. And this is why science knows that we have a problem here. (laughs) And everybody goes, no, I don't. Too many dots. They had a drought. And we lose everybody. It's like, no, we can't. And so part of that is, you know, I look at it and I go, okay, you know, the on-ramp needs to change because we need to be able to go from Assassin's Creed to the VR, to the textbooks, to the understanding, to the archaeology, to the records, to the big data, and then go, see, this is why it's a problem, people. Exactly. I'm a big fan of big picture critical thinking. And I think a problem, especially with ancient history and ancient cultures, Mm. people tend to see it as an unchanging block of a culture. Ancient Egypt (laughs) happened a long time ago, and it was the same the whole time, and then it ended. And from my point of view, ancient what we would consider ancient Egyptian culture started at least 5,000 years ago and is arguably still happening when you can't assign a time of death to a culture. And it's changing the whole time. So like I said, King Tut falls pretty much in the middle. He's not representative of the rest of the culture because it was always developing in different ways. We are not the same people from the 1950s, let alone 100, 200 years ago. And in a textbook, if you want to teach ancient Egyptian you know, as a culture, ancient Greece, whatever, you teach it as a big block of easily digestible concepts 
that sort of define a culture, but it's not really the truth. It's not representative. And so the more things we have, like Assassin's Creed or historical fictions that tell these personal stories, that's going to get people more interested in doing their own research and finding out new details. You know, again, that's why I'm here. I, it got personal. I met a mummy in a museum. You know, <laughs> it's, I read a book and then I met a mummy and I'm like, well, this, so that's over now. The, I've got to uh, study this. Given sort of the... <laughs> the philosophical edges of history, which is touches on some themes where we are often talking about uh, the edge of scientific understanding. And that's where it kind of all turns into a philosophical uh, endeavor, right? And so I'm curious, from your perspective, right. hearing the way you're talking about uh, teaching history and learning history and, and tying it in with the rest of modern culture in these interesting ways, the fact that we no matter how much we study, there'll always be these aspects that we're guessing at. And and in reality, it, it kind of most of it, right? Yes. Especially was, as you go back thousands of years. What, do, what yeah. in your opinion, and this can be like a lighthearted answer or a, a, a deep answer, what's the point of studying history? I think it really comes down to that, so not just the trite sort of, mm -hmm. he who doesn't study history is doomed to repeat it sort of thing. Although I do believe that's true. We're talking about humans and humans, although our cultures are different, our traditions are different, we tend to react to problem solving in similar ways throughout time. And it's interesting to study different mm -hmm. strategies for problem solving across history. That's that's the sort of why, what's the value of learning history. Um, the other side of it is sort of an hmm. emotional philosophical side because we're humans, we're still humans, and these were real people. And even whether you consider history to be sort of like the deeds of great mm -hmm. men and women, the, the kings, the queens, the philosophers, or you believe hmm. it's a sort of social movement that starts at the ground and drives things towards change, there's still mm -hmm. individual humans whose stories are worth learning about. They're very interesting. And especially if you go back far enough, it's it sort of becomes a global cultural history. I'm not going to say that I'm related to ancient Egyptians because I don't think I am. But there's no reason to think in I in the world I study that it is distanced from me in that way. I, I'm personally interested right. and dedicated to this sort of study. I think it's really relevant. The other reason to learn history is because it's so relevant it's really useful for reflecting our own world. Like we will never know what the ancient Egyptians were really like. Hmm. Whatever mm -hmm. we say about them reflects us. Mm -hmm. If you look through the history of National Geographic, whenever they have right. those, you know, recreation paintings of the pharaohs, if you look now, they look a very certain way. If you look back in <laughs> 1950, they look like a Cecil B. DeMille movie. You know, if you look back to the 1920s, they were stark white and all their slaves were stark black. And, you know, it's right. it changes a lot about our cultural beliefs. And on one side, that means you can never really trust history, <laughs> which, okay, sure, that's problematic. But I think that's why in my own teaching, I've found it really important to discuss identity on a personal and a cultural level. Um, the ancient world, any type and point in history, can teach us what it means to be an individual, what it means to fit into a group or not, the kind of choices we make in interacting with each other. And so I'm really happy that ancient Egypt is one of the cultures of the world where they have such a long period of interacting with other diverse cultures. And you can see the choices they make in interacting, in choosing to not interact, in warfare, in intermarriage, in peaceful trade. It gives a lot of... Hmm 
human examples, good or bad to follow. And I think it's, that's what I find fascinating about it. But I, in sharing that with other students, they seem to really latch on to that and see themselves represented in the past. The, the, one of the greatest things that's ever happened in teaching and in the tours too, is when I'll try to explain something through my own experience. And I was, I was raised Catholic. And so when talking about religion, I often refer back to cultural practices from my family and people will go like, oh yes, in my family, we do this too. And you know, it, it all kind of builds up a narrative. And then someone will say, well, I come from a very different cultural background and we see it this way. And then we have a conversation <laughs> about how that is also a completely all accurate right. way to interpret the same evidence. So <laughs> I'm not interested in being correct. I'm interested in the philosophical yeah. You know, there is no answer. Let's just discuss, which to be fair is not a great way to grade papers and assign final grades. To well, like I said, it's also <laughs> the only true wisdom right. is knowing so you know nothing. That's always that's the trick answer that every philosophy student dreams of giving, you know, just because, yep. Yep. you know, and then you hand in your paper and you get a, yeah, but yes, no, you don't do that. You have to, you have to at least cite. All right, now I have one, I have one more before me. we wrap up, Kerb. <laughs> yeah. And may, I hope this isn't a cliched okay. question, but I'm really curious if you have, I'm curious what the like current scientific consensus is, if there is one, or in general, how you think the pyramids were constructed. Oh, um, I think we're, we pretty much know how they were constructed. And the answer is very simple. A lot of people over a lot of time. Okay. Um, there's lots of tricks we know about the physics okay. and material science, especially is very helpful. If mm -hmm. you wet down sand, it's a lot slipperier. So if you need to drag a stone mm -hmm. block across sands, mm -hmm. you get it wet first, and then you can slide things. Um, Egypt is a culture that had, especially in the days of the great pyramids, like at Giza, the ones that are still there and still famous. Later on, they made smaller pyramids to save time and money. Um, no, they really did. Mm -hmm. They kept on experimenting <laughs> with the formula. And the great age of pyramids at Giza and at Saqqara um, they, they pretty much had it down to a perfect science by then. And it was a time when the centralized government was totally in control. The religion and the king all focused around each other and everyone else was there to serve at their whim. And that's not to say that life for a peasant was terrible. Um, hmm. It's just to say that your goal in life was oriented towards building these large monuments. In participating in building a pyramid, you got a piece of eternity too by being close to the king, by being part of the process. Uh, the pyramids were not built by slaves, by the way. They were definitely built by paid workers. Um, there's an argument that maybe you couldn't get out hmm. of the work. You know, you were kind of drafted into it for part of the year, but mm -hmm. it was in the <laughs> off season when you weren't growing crops anyway. Right. So, and you were definitely paid. Um, this wasn't a monetary economy. So you were paid in food, beer, bread, vegetables, that kind of thing. Um, we actually know a lot about the people who worked on the pyramids. We have some of their houses. We have some of their documents. Um, and by the time we get to creating the tombs in the Valley of the Kings, we know so much about those people. We know their names and family trees. Who's the artist of this tomb and who did that? Um, <laughs> how many sick days did he wow. take in the month of March? You know, it's... <laughs> um, but I think... Oh, that's crazy. Well, I think the cool thing there that okay. brings us sort of full circle is when we do our episodes about VR, like we, when we do a technical, yep. like let's walk through the tech sort of evolution of something that gets us up to VR, we usually start with just human efforts to recreate reality right. or record reality. The reason we know so much of this stuff, and this is maybe the first time Egypt ever came up on our podcast was talking about, yeah. well, they figured out paper. So we have mm -hmm. written documents that's like the reason you say you know all that stuff is because like we've because we found that i feel like alex yeah, jones really right now it. we have the documents yeah. 
<laughs> no, and we have their scrap paper. We have so many. It would be like raiding someone's trash can today and finding it in good That's condition. Wild. You'd find weird stuff in there. You wouldn't necessarily know how to interpret it, but along with maybe like an unshredded tax form, you know, the big important that's, state documents, so crazy. It's, it's, um, you'd find things like their grocery a... lists, which we have, you know, their, right. their sketches that they doodled. It's so neat. It, yeah. Yeah. It's those little details that really bring out the humanity too, right? The day to day and you can go from, oh, yep. well, these people, this person worked on the Great Pyramids, which is like yeah. this iconic <laughs> thing that's with yep. you from birth almost as a human in the world now to, <laughs> oh, wait, he had, this person had to yeah. go to the grocery store too They're, to like get dinner. Egypt's really lucky that so <laughs> to many down things to the are because lots of ancient historical cultures don't have the textual record. And you're mostly dealing with sort of pots and tools and some artistic things. But with Egypt, we have mm. letters they wrote to each mm -hmm. other. We have people writing home from boarding school, dear mom, I'm out of money. My clothes are a mess. Please send money. You know, it's, it's so human. We have stories about like, we have village intrigue. So we know who was cheating yeah. on who, you know, it's, and that's what makes it really magical to study. Cause it always well, feels, feels like a very, pretty good place real. to get and out of here. Cause we're, we're almost out of time, to me, but at least to me, thank you for, <laughs> coming on to talk about all this stuff and thank yeah. you for continuing neat. the really study okay. of that stuff because i don't have time to actually go look at the documents but it's but what we find <laughs> well, there is super online cool these days. you can find yeah you, you could find I could. them online if you're right. interested <laughs> yeah this was great thanks for spending the uh the morning with us and for that amazing tour and for just doing that in general it's a really great. really awesome yeah i hope i hope there's lots more opportunities to do stuff like this in the future not just for me but i think it's a great project and a way to go with teaching history totally. Uh, thank you for having me here. I've really, this is fun. Wonderful. I haven't done a podcast before. This Great. is exciting. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. And I hope the viewer enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, thanks for, thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Special thanks as always to our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month to help keep this thing going. Uh, if you want to help out over there, you can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. Otherwise, this is Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. I'm Bethany. Thanks for hanging, everybody. They don't know. Oh, please.